All right, time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Hey, Keith. Happy Friday. Same to you. And I know you heard my interview there with uh, parents advocate and students advocate Cindy Daglish about the government's new proposed school food guidelines saying no to pizza, no hot dogs, yeah. no cupcakes. You know, we should be serving kids fruit, vegetables, and tofu instead. I mean, what kind of stuff did you eat in school? You probably weren't eating tofu. Uh, I never had tofu, I think, until I was in my low 20s, young 20s. Yeah. I'm totally with Cindy on this. I know Cindy. Um, I think she speaks for anybody who's raised an 8-year-old or a 7-year-old. You don't put a plate of tofu in front of me. I don't think yeah. kids are jumping up and down and saying, oh, boy, it's tofu day at school today. <laughs> it's broccoli day. Yeah. Can't wait to get there. Uh, just like you were mentioning, pizza day, oh, it was great because you didn't have to make a lunch for your, well, for your kids that it. day. I mean, the kids were happy and the parents were happy too. Yeah, and uh, and these are used for fundraisers, as Cindy pointed out, uh, yeah. hot dogs and such. They're, they're cheap. It's cheap food. It's easy. Yeah. It's not the healthiest, but it's not every day either. So I think uh, I think these guidelines are sort of overreaching. Yeah, and especially I think the fun the fundraising aspect is an important one yeah. too because we had several parents call in in the call in segment. They're pointing out, hey, like we sold a lot of hot dogs at fundraisers and helped us build a park, you know, a playground at yeah, our kids' and, school. Yeah, and your point when you went to school, you know, you had what was the the platter? The platter, yeah. We had our version of the platter at our junior high. I have no idea what was in it in terms <laughs> of the meat. It was it didn't look healthy at all. Everyone right. ordered it, and it well, was, what was he must have had some idea. It, what was, it was it was. Basically a cheeseburger, but I was yeah. never entirely sure it was beef. All you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it was, though, and I'm sure it was an unhealthy sauce slopped all over that thing. But everybody ate it because it was delicious. Oh yeah, everyone at our school would have that platter with gravy. That was the most yeah. popular yeah. item on the on the menu. So we'll, we'll continue to follow that one. They are proposed guidelines. Okay, the government is asking for feedback. I suspect they're going to get a lot of uh, that feedback. Um, let's talk about the government's. Uh, negotiations with the big public sector unions here. It's interesting to see some of these numbers have now come out. The gap. Yeah, big gap here. So the BCGEU, Government Workers Union here, seeking 5% in each year of a two-year deal. So 10% raise over two years. And look what the government is offering here. 1.75 in year one, plus 25 cents an hour. It's a weird offer. 2% in years two and three of a three-year deal, plus, now this is what you've been talking about, a signing bonus, plus a $1,000 signing bonus is there. Still far apart there. Yeah, very far apart. And uh, if, if the BCGU is this far apart, you can be pretty sure the BCTF is even wider apart because they usually yeah. come in with a much uh, more lucrative uh, contract that they're seeking. The HEU is probably just as far apart. So you start doing the math on this. This is a significant difference of dollars. Um, there's 393,000 unionized workers in, in the public sector. A 1% increase across the board for everyone is about $310 million hit to the Treasury. Uh, each and every year it's in, the, it's in there. It gets added to the base in the second year. So we're talking uh, like a 5% increase across the board for all public sector workers over three years. And the government's seeking a three-year deal is about $9.7 billion in total, total yeah. costs over three years. Now, there is a lot of money in the, in the government's fiscal plan that is unallocated, huge contingency budgets. So there is money in there for a significant wage increase. It, I yeah. think is more than one point seven five. I think it's. I think you're going to see the sweet spot here, somewhere north of two percent, less than five percent, and a bigger signing bonus than one thousand dollars. I wonder how big this gap is. I mean, every time you start negotiations, there's always a gap, right? Like the union yep. will always ask for more than they hope to get, well, it's, and it's, the government's going to offer less. I mean, that's just the way you negotiate. But what's what's interesting? The BCGU is usually one of the first units to settle, and that yeah. becomes the guideline for. 
for uh, sort of for pattern, others, pattern pattern bargaining. And the government in the past uh, has established what are called negotiating mandates, where everyone yeah. basically gets the same. Uh, there are whispers out there that maybe, who knows, maybe the nurses get something different. They've been on the front line in the pandemic like no other worker uh, mm. in the public sector. I mean, they would get more. That's that's one possibility. I don't. I mean, I've I've had it shot down by people who are you know in the negotiating side saying no, that's not going to happen. But you can be creative at the bargaining table too. There's more than just wages and where you can sweeten the pot. But I think you're gonna they're gonna have to come up with a bigger signing bonus. And uh, could we be could be heading to strikes here because I mean there's always a gap. But I think this year in particular with inflation racing the way it is right now and the gap as large as it is is it a recipe for job action and strikes well i think the recipe is the the chances there like we haven't seen for years yeah because inflation has not been a factor at the negotiating table right i mean it's like one or two percent maybe two and a half percent and that's that was the contract settlement last time was two and a half percent when it's inflation is five percent or 5.7% and, and growing, uh, although some people suggest it may start easing, who knows, um, that's a significant gap. And that's a significant gap for unionized workers in terms of falling behind in terms of their paycheck. Especially when the unions are looking for a COLA or a cost of living allowance, right? So the raise would be indexed potentially to inflation. And if inflation goes up even higher, yeah. you'd have a higher raise. Now, the government could balk at that. Oh, I think the government's going to balk at a lot of things. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's this, this is a tough round of negotiations. You know, the GU has, the BCGEU has not been on strike en masse for years. They're, but their number one leverage used to be the liquor stores. Yeah. Uh, because there were no private liquor stores for years in BC. So they had a stranglehold. If they put a picket line around a liquor store, effectively closed the liquor store. And that, I remember, I think there was a strike in the 70s or 80s where that was a real um, hammer that the GU had. They don't have that at their luxury. But well, the liquor stores are shut down. Okay, we'll settle. What do you, how much do you want? <laughs> how much do you want? How much do you want? Please don't shut down the liquor store. Yeah. But now there's, you know, um, a competing arm of private liquor stores. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, they've got less leverage. Less leverage. Now, that's yeah. not completely gone because they still obviously still have the liquor distribution branch, um, which would be behind a picket line. Let me ask you, let's talk about Pierre Polyev running for the conservative leadership. Yeah. He's in Vancouver the last couple of days, and, and like he's gone everywhere in Canada getting big crowds. So he's getting yeah. like a thousand people or more. You don't see this in leadership races. You yeah. know, when you think of how many re- leadership races you and I have covered over the years, you don't see huge rallies associated with one candidate. This yeah. is, is kind of unusual. And he's tapping into, I think, that group of the section of the population that became into into view with the trucker convoy protests, the disgruntled people, the anti-Trudeau crowd. Yes. Um, and, it's, you know, where is Jean Charest uh, and other candidates? You just don't hear from them. Piol- Poliev is on this, uh, this speaking tour. He got a thou- more than 1,000 people last night, I think. He's Amazing. In the, in the East End, I believe, of Vancouver. Um, but now, they're on a, you take a snapshot, or I, t- I watched a video of it to post it. Um, it's an older crowd. It's a white, um, predominantly male crowd. So that's a great, it's perhaps a way to win the leadership of the Conservative Party, because that's probably reflective of the base of that party. But to take that into an election campaign, uh, it's not necessarily a recipe for electoral success. Okay, let's, let's have a listen to Pierre Poliev running for the Conservative leadership. Here's what he had to say yesterday in Vancouver. Here in B.C., we have the third most expensive real estate on planet Earth. Uh, food prices have risen to a point where single moms have to skip meals uh, so their kids don't have to. Gas is up at $2 a litre here in this city. 
This is all driven by government, government taxes and government deficits. More expensive government means a more expensive cost of living. And today the liberals are turbocharging inflation. You know, when he starts hitting on real estate prices, gas prices, and linking that to government policy, that could hit home with a lot of supporters. Oh, for sure. I think he hits a lot of good buttons. He told Jazz Joe, he was on Jazz's show yeah. yesterday, and he told Jazz that he would tie uh, federal infrastructure money to municipalities based on how many housing units Wow. They would build, yeah. which would be quite an interesting move. So you'd tie, uh, for example, the federal government is is helping fund the Surrey Langley tra- um, uh, SkyTrain extension. Yeah. So under Poliev's uh, view, well, the only money that would go there to Surrey and Langley to build that was if Surrey and Langley showed uh, proof that uh, X number of houses were going to be built as a result of that federal. Money I mean, looking in. at this right now, it, uh, judging on the size of the crowds that Poliev is getting, I mean, it looks like he's running away with it. Yeah, he seems to be lapping the field. But, we, yeah. I mean, we don't know about uh, internal uh, party leadership campaigns. It's all done by, you know, you well, sign-up members. It's, it's all about membership sign-ups. Yeah. I mean, if you get in thousands, of, if you get a 1,000 people out at every rally that you hold, I mean, that's a lot of memberships that you sell. Oh, like. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, again, it's going to be uh, be determined how many are signed up in Ontario, basically. Yeah. That's going to determine the outcome. It's not, not Vancouver. What were your thoughts on the federal budget yesterday? Eh, Jumped out at you. Nothing really. I don't find it really that dramatic. It was um, a lot was, of it was leaked. A lot of the big stuff was leaked early. It's always leaked. You yeah. know, this is a, this is a trademark in Ottawa, and it started under Harper. It's continuing under Trudeau, which is you leak selectively parts of the budget, particularly to major Ontario news outlets. The Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star usually get the bulk of the leaks, and sure enough, the Star. I think you and I talked about it a couple of days ago. Before the budget leaked, that there was going to be a ban on foreign uh, purchases, foreign buyers, of, of and that was there, yep. and a tax-free savings account for people yep. under forty. Uh, so that was all leaked. There was uh, some of the leaks didn't turn out to be accurate. This the notion that the defense budget was going to be really increased that didn't. That well, didn't it went up eight billion, but not on a percentage basis anywhere near. Oh, yeah, because they're the, still they're still not hitting the two percent GDP right. threshold that NATO that NATO wants, wants. Yep. and that was the expectation that it would, and yep. they, they they fell short of that. Um, but by and large, I mean, it's interesting, the housing stuff, who knows whether it's going to have an impact on uh, on the red-hot real estate market in Metro Vancouver. The, the Conservatives continue to zero in, saying this is overspending, the deficit and debt are too big, but the deficit scheduled to come down. Here's Christian Freeland talking about the ability to spend by government. Our ability to spend is not infinite. The time for extraordinary COVID support is over. And we will review and reduce government spending because that is the responsible thing to do. So the deficit this year, $53 billion, but scheduled to come down in gears going forward. Yeah, it's still going to be a huge deficit for a number of years, just like it is at, at the provincial level for the most part. Um, that's the, the hangover from the pandemic. All right, welcome back. Keith Baldry is my guest, and the phone lines are open, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. The BC vaccine card is gone as of today, so you can go to a bar, pub, or restaurant, don't have to show proof of vaccination, but some places will still require it, yeah, including, so it's not, it's not, including the BC legislature. Yeah, it, it's not gone, but it is is no longer required yeah. uh, to get into most uh, establishments. But interestingly, the BC legislature is keeping the rule in place. You cannot come into this building unless you show proof of vaccination. So that hasn't, that's not changing. Other businesses will probably uh, keep the same rule. I don't think a lot of restaurants are going to, are going to require vaccination, but they may. Um, and why, one reason why the, it's being required, uh, still at the legislature, everyone who works at the legislature wants it to remain. So here's a case of the employees of the legislature basically 
really hoping that the vaccination requirement would stay on the books and it's staying on the books as a result. Right. So that would apply to people who work in the BC legislature, but also tourists, right? So let's yep. say you want to go on a tour of the building, which happens all the which time. Is, which has been the You'd rules. You have to show you proof of vaccination still. Which has right? been the rules for months and it's yeah. going to remain the rule. It's not changing. But again, I think we're the exception rather yeah. than the norm. You're still, I don't, again, I, large restaurants are just not going to have that vaccination requirement. Okay. Call me on that if you like. Star 9898 on your cell. Lori and Mission. Hi, Lori. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm calling about the, the guideline for food. Yes. And I agree with your other caller. If uh, hot dogs take, thir- or you, if hot dogs take 36 minutes off your life, I'd have been dead 20 years ago. Um, but I think that it's a ludicrous thing. But if they're hell-bent on doing it, then it should be totally distinct from fundraising. And if in their cafeterias or during school hours, if they want to make healthy choices, then their cafeterias can't mm-hmm. serve that food. And fundraising is separate. It's not done well, by the school. Yeah, it's th- done by the parents. Thank you, Lori, for that. And who, who knows, that might be the compromise here. I mean, remember, the government's now asking parents for feedback. So if you feel strongly about it, you should tell the government how you well, feel about and for, it. And maybe that will be an exception. Say if it's a fundraiser, it'll be okay to have like a sell some hot dogs or a bake sale. These are suggested guidelines. I'd be surprised if the education ministry comes in with a big foot and says, no. you will not sell hot dogs, period. I think no. it's just basically guidelines to give some guidance on, on some healthy food choices. But we're not going to see tofu days in school. Sorry. No. no, that's not going to work. Mike in Vancouver. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Hi there. Yeah, I just want to um, talk about the budget yesterday. There's a $40,000 sure. uh, uh, TFSA for first-time home buyers. Yes. I mean, it just, it just shows how the politicians are out of touch there. Uh, I mean, how is a, mi- a mid-class person supposed to save an extra $8,000 a year? And what's the advantage of that? They, they got to they save that on their own money and to get a tax write-off. Well, you know, you, you save $2,000 in taxes by doing that. But then the carbon tax gone up, all the other taxes gone up. So really, they're just, they're not, they're not, they're not helping with this uh, at, at all. It's just, it's okay. just to get votes. Well, yeah. It. Okay, thanks for the call. I sort of have the same view. I mean, you take a you take a couple in their thirties in Metro Vancouver. They're already paying sky high rent money. Yeah. They, I don't think they would have a lot of disposable income at the end of the day to save eight thousand dollars a year. You just you know, start doing the math. How many young people out there can save eight thousand dollars? Uh, a year. It's uh, it's going to be very... Still, when you're already paying high costs for housing. I still think it could be popular, though, because if you're allowed... You're, you'll be able to put that money in tax-free and then withdraw it tax-free if you spend, well, my if point you spend is, the money on a first home. Very That's a few, pretty big advantage. But only people who can afford that. And yeah. not, like my point is, there's very few people uh, under 40 right now who can salt away $8,000 a year if they're living in Metro where they're already paying huge rent costs, which are taking a disproportionate giant chunk uh, out of their wallet. Where it's going to be popular is outside of Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a complete non-starter in, in a place where you've got homes a million and a half, million and a half dollars. What about the foreign buyer's ban? Do you think that will make any difference? Well, the, the analysts I saw yesterday, realtors, and said, said, and you talked about this before, about the horse leaving the barn. This, this yeah. may have had a big impact 10 years ago, yeah. but right now there's already been uh, chasing away foreign dollars out of, out of the market, so it's not going to have the big impact that it would have had a decade ago. Because they've already brought in a foreign buyer's tax. There's a vacancy tax. Vacancy. Tax. And a lot of that has had an impact. Like if you take a look at the number of 
yeah. offshore per- properties that are purchased in Vancouver, it's only like one and a half percent, something yeah. like that. So, so it's, it's not the big thing. Again, I think this whole housing package is going to have more of an impact outside of Metro Vancouver rather than in. Keith, thanks for coming in. All right, have a great weekend.